I want to talk with us this morning about being saved. Being saved. Well, I'm wondering how you're responding to that. Now, there are a few of us here that are going to really like that. Because when that, when that phrase is used, being saved, it just reminds us of the, the greatest experience of our whole lives. But I'm telling you, in our world as a whole, that phrase hasn't been popular for a long time. Did you know that? I remember back when I was in college, you know, here I'm a baby boomer. And people say that I'm in this uh, ideology called modernity. And, and a part of that is that people my age and others like me always had this idea that we can get it done. Uh, it's really hard for us to admit weakness and failure. And so this being saved notion is very humiliating when you think about it, isn't it? It's the acknowledgement that John had to come to that I can't do it. That I, that I need somebody from the outside to come in and, and pull me out of this mess. And, and many people just didn't like that idea. Always wanting to pretend somehow I can. And so being saved wasn't all that popular back then. Now, I'll tell you, being saved isn't all that popular now either. But I think it's for a very different reason. Uh, this past decade plus, I've had the privilege of working mostly with uh, college-age students and younger graduate students. And a, a part of what of what is called postmodernity, if, if that really is a real thing. But a part of what I really like about younger generations right now, younger adults right now, is that they don't pretend what we used to pretend, that, that there's no weakness and no failure. One of the things that struck me throughout my entire time of working in the university was how open uh, and transparent uh, the, the students were. Uh, they didn't try to pretend that they, that they could do anything but instead opened up their lives. And I, so, so you would think, of course, this notion that someone is willing to come alongside and rescue us would, would surely be very popular. But it isn't. Uh, the idea of being saved is, uh, is viewed with antipathy by so many people today. But I think for a very different reason. I think it's for a very different reason. I've wondered why. Uh, why we even have a movie that came out a few years ago called Saved that just makes fun. It mocks those who claim to be that. I've thought, well, maybe it's, it's because uh, it's not as sophisticated as we'd like to have. But I, I think there may be another reason, and some of us who are churchgoers, people like me who claim to be among those being saved, uh, we have to see this, that in a survey that was done, it's down in a book by David Kinneman called Unchristian, points out what young adults in the United States think about churchgoers who claim to be saved people. And that is we're often viewed as arrogant, uh, self-righteous, sometimes hypocritical, pretending that we've done something that nobody else is and nobody else is, is quite as good. So, so nowadays, what I find people talking about, they're willing, people are willing to talk about some sort of a journey with God or, or being spiritual. And I like those phrases, journeying and, 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 and spirituality. But, but it, I'll tell you, when I read the Bible, and the text particularly that we come to today, if we are going to understand what the Christian faith is all about, we have to see that what we need as human beings is a divine intervention. <laughs> we, we need somebody who will step in and pull us out of this mess because, as John has said, a train is coming at us. And we've rock, walked right there into its path. So I've tried to figure out how I'm going to talk about this this morning. Uh, because when you come to the book of Ephesians, 
I'll tell you what it's about. It's about salvation. Chapter one is about that being saved, but it's from God's perspective. And it's what we've been looking at. Church folks who've been here, visitors, you need to know this. It tells us from God's perspective that before the creation of the world, God had a plan. He was going to look at this this difficult, darkened, troubled world, and He loved people, and He was going to rescue a group of people from every nation, every language, every color, every people group. He was going to draw into His unexpected family people that He would forgive He would adopt into his family and he would lavish his blessings upon us so that when the world would see it, they say, what is that group of people doing together? And they would know that God is at work to the praise of his glory. I'll tell you, when we come to chapter two, it's still about the same matter of this need of rescue, but it's from a human perspective. Look at chapter two, verse one. It begins as for you, as for you. And now it begins looking at this whole matter of this rescue of God. God breaking into this world and transforming lives. But it's from a human perspective. So I've thought about now. That's what the Bible's talking about. And if you're visiting today and you're not often a church goer, let me tell you, this is a good Sunday to be here. Because this text, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, probably crystallizes the heart of the Christian faith as much as any place in the entire Bible. So if you've wondered what Christianity is about, this text is going to tell you. But again, I've wondered now, how can I talk about this so that those of us who have heard this message often might hear it in a new and a fresh way? And how can I say it so that those who just you hear the phrase and you say, I don't want to hear about that, this being. So that's the very being saved. That's the very thing. I that's what I don't like so that you can hear how beautiful it is. And I've chosen to try to, to talk about it the way the Bible does in terms of a story. In terms of a story. Do you know that I like stories? Uh, I, I read a lot of things. I like commentaries. Yes, I, I really do. Bible. Co- I like theologies. Uh, I like history. I'll even sometimes tolerate a how-to book. Um, but what I really like, I really like stories. I like character development. You know, I, I like plots. I like where there's conflict and tension that sets in. I like those moments where it just seems like it's just not going to work out. And then a turning point happens. And and the the main character has to make a big decision. And I love great endings. In fact, I think my favorite stories are usually told in terms of of what is called a U-shaped plot. I was talking about this this week and I I sort of drew it. So I wanted a sophisticated illustration of what a U-shaped plot is. So Zach Johnson just took my drawing and put it up here. So there it is, but it might be good enough. You've drawn a U. You've drawn a U. And so you can understand what's going on there, can't you? In this kind of a story, it starts with things looking pretty good. Uh, Like in Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings, in in The Hobbit, The Shire. Everything seems to be okay, but then decisions are made. You start to see that there's evil in the world. Things start going down. It gets to be harder and harder. Uh, The evil of this world, the conflicts that happen, it gets worse and worse until it seems to be absolutely hopeless. And you hit the bottom of the U. And usually at that point, a big decision has to be made. Sometimes a hero steps in who can make a difference, but you've got to respond and trust that hero. And a decision is made that turns the U from something that's headed down to something that turns the corner. But the story's not over. You start to begin, you begin to see the remaking until it ends. It ends in triumph, in majesty, in joy. The great stories, the good and evil stories are like this, aren't they? 
the Star Wars saga, uh, most of the Narnia Chronicles, almost all of the great good and evil stories are told in this U-shaped plot. And the Bible is constructed in a U-shaped plot. The history of the world. The story of redemption. It begins in Genesis 1 and 2. See it up there? Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, where God is powerful and is And this powerful God has created a world. And when he's done with his creation, he says, it's good. It's very good. And then we find ourselves, human beings, Adam and Eve, find themselves in a beautiful place in the Garden of Eden. So it looks awfully good. The top of the U. But then Genesis 3. And sin enters this world. And one person after another comes into a fallen world and engages in sin and transgressions until this world is just just in a mess and it looks absolutely hopeless but even as you go down to you God begins a plan he begins a plan he chooses a people the people of Israel through whom he's going to send a rescuer a Messiah and at the very climax of history what we're going to celebrate in December God comes the long-awaited Messiah Jesus Christ comes into this world God with us the one who is able to rescue and to save and I'll tell you today as, as we get there Uh, Where we find ourselves here in 21st century uh, Pasadena, uh, in and of ourselves, is at the bottom of the U. And that brings us to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And I, I just called it, lives at the bottom of the U, or life before Christ. You see, we we come to a point uh, in our lives where we begin to recognize that there's something missing. Uh, that's what John. That's why I wanted him to give his testimony. You heard him talk about this. Something is out there that, that I believe is there, but, but something is missing. Sometimes it happens to us when we're children, doesn't it? Uh, even the small child can grasp this. The child looks at its life and says, Why am I not the way I should? And hears about Jesus and believes. So many of us did that. Sometimes it happens much later. I remember a very successful businessman in my first church. Uh, He had been an executive in one of the largest companies in America and a major leader in the United Nations. So a global leader. But then his company had retired him, though he didn't want to. And the United Nations retired him too. And so he decided for the first time in his life he'd spend some time with his wife and children. But when he spent time with them, they decided they didn't like him. So his wife left him and the children took the side of their mother. And so he started showing up at church. Um... When I met with him for coffee one day, he said, I've had everything, everything that people say brings meaning to to life in this world. And it doesn't. There must be something more out there. There must be something more that I haven't found. You see what we're getting at here. He was at the bottom of that you. I mean, all human beings are there uh, apart from God. But he had finally come to see it. Now, what's the problem? Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 and three concise verses tells us the three problems. Number one, we are dead. Number two, we're enslaved. Number three, because of that, we're in big time trouble. Well, let's just think about it. We're dead. Uh, As for you, you got to remember this, Paul says, in spite of all that God has done, you too were dead in your transgressions and sins in that way of life that you, you used to live. Now, this is a very hard thing uh, to talk with people in the world about generally. Because I'm guessing most of you don't feel all that dead. Some of you look more than others. I'll, I'll just tell you. But the early service, I know I'm trying to look up there in the balcony. 
but what is this like when a, when a preacher gets up and says, you know, we're dead? Is this kind of like, do you remember that old Princess Bride movie where you have the main character, Wesley, who has died and his friends Fezzik and Inigo Montoya bring him in to the, the, the retired miracle worker, Max, and he takes his hand and he says, I've seen worse. And they said, but, but he's already dead. He said, he's a, yes, there's a difference between mostly dead and all dead. This one's just mostly dead. When they're all dead, all you can do is go through their pockets and look for loose change. <laughs> you remember that story? Is that what's going on here? That the Bible says, yes, apart from God, we're dead, but we're not quite dead. So there's still something we can do to help ourselves. Well, now let me see if I can make it as clear as possible. Do you know the Bible talks about the fact that there are two kinds of life? All right, there's physical life, what all of us here are experiencing. But that's not all there is to the world. There is spiritual life or eternal life. Uh, in physical life, when we're born, when we're born uh, or, or when we come alive, our, our senses, our physical senses, uh, are alive to, to the stimuli in this physical world. Uh, we can smell, we, 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 we can taste. So to, uh, physical, material stimulus. Uh, but the Bible tells us that there's more to reality than just the physical world. Uh, those of us who are human, we have a deep sense that that's true. Uh, a sense that there must, must be, but we're dead to it. You see it, there's, spirit, there's physical life and, and there's spiritual life. Uh, and what the Bible says is that because of our sins and transgressions that we've entered into, we are not alive to a very real world that we don't fully live until we're both physically and spiritually alive. Um, that God is there, but we don't know Him personally. That the Scriptures are His Word, but it just seems like a book to us. It, it's not really uh, alive to us. And, and that the, the thing that's gotten us into a mess is this thing we don't talk nearly enough about, uh, that the Bible calls transgressions and sins. Menninger, back in the early 70s, wrote a book, Whatever Happened to Sin? Why doesn't anybody talk about it? Anymore. Well, we have to talk about it because all of us know that we've fallen short. And again, it, it, it's the thing that I see in the younger adult population. People are much more willing to acknowledge. And the two words that the Bible uses there, transgressions and sins, are things I think we can resonate with. Transgressions. We know that this is the way we should live, but we have walked into a boundary that we should never go into. Going down a path that we know, we know is wrong. And when we go down that path, we go down it anyway. Transgressions. A sins means there, there is a, a standard, a, a way that we know we should live. And then when we look at ourselves, we know we haven't met it. Have, haven't you experienced that? We, we keep saying, I want to live that way, but we know we haven't met that way. So we are dead to God because he's perfect. We're dead because we are not. We are not holy and we don't know him. So the first problem that we have in this world on our own is that we're dead to something that's very, very real. Um, a good friend of mine is from Nigeria. I was talking about this one day, and he said, in our tribal village that I grew up in, we have uh, a, a doctrine that many people hold to, uh, that when some people die, they stay around in the village for a while, mostly to encourage people that they're not really gone yet. We call it the living dead. The living dead. Well, here I'm turning this on end. I'm just saying that all around Southern California in the 21st century, there are a whole lot of dead living. Physically alive, 
but not alive to God, not really living. And you'll see them all around town. And I'm sure that our whole worship center is filled, too, with dead living, longing to be alive. So that's the first problem. We're dead. Number two, uh, that physical part of us may want to live well, but we're enslaved. We can't get out of it. We don't have the strength to do it. And he uses uh, the different words for what it is that enslaves us in this world. Look at it first. We're in slavery because we live in this world and all of its systems. The problem of the world enslaving us. Verse 2. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Um, By the world, he's not talking about the people of the world. God loves the people of the world. He's talking about the systems that have come in because of the imperfection of the world. Uh, Parents, you understand this with your children. When they start developing friendships with kids, you, you tell them, don't just be like everybody else. Have you, have you ever said that? And yet, what everything that, that seems to mold them and shape them is the way everybody else is living. Well, children, it's not just you. <laughs> Parents, it affects us all the time. It's the whole way the world thinks, the value systems of this world, the systems of this world. This past few weeks, as our economy has just been sinking, and not just ours, but globally, I've thought this is an opportunity for us as followers of Jesus to see if our value system is different from the rest of the world. I mean, so many people in the world can't imagine that you can be at peace and have any joy without material things going well. Isn't that true? And that affects all of us. Uh, Though Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount, look, I took care of the birds of the air, and, and so I'll take care of you. But the way of this world makes us sometimes think we're shaped by it. Without material things, we can't really be people who experience shalom. See, we we are affected by the way the world lives and thinks and enslaved by that. We try to break from it, go right back to it. He also says that's not the only enemy. We have these three great enemies that enslave us. Not only the ways of the world, but also the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The evil one. The Bible really talks about personal evil in this world, that though we may not be alive to it and knowing it, it affects us. Uh, People my age, remember the old Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. It doesn't make us do everything, but there is evil that affects us and enslaves us. And finally, not just the the world and, and the evil one, but also there's our own Sinful nature, our own flesh. All of us, verse 3, not just a few, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desire and its thoughts. So that that physical part of us, though it may long to do what is good and right, it keeps being drawn to what is not. Um, I've talked about it before. We have these times, even when you come to church, to say, I'm not going to do those things anymore. We turn over a new leaf, we walk out the door, we go home, we go into our businesses or whatever, and we engage in it again. We begin to wonder, is there any hope? I want a new leaf. The old leaf is always there. The Bible says we're trapped. We're enslaved. We don't have the strength to live the way we were created to live. So you see, we're dead. We're enslaved. And because of that, we're in big time trouble. That's what that verse 3 is. All of us, all of us. By nature, apart from God, the way we are, are objects of wrath. What that is talking about is that God is good and holy, 
And God has said that he would have a moral world that he creates, but for a world to be moral, evil has to be punished. Read Romans chapter 1. So the wrath of God, the punishment of God, is poured out against all that is evil and that's not right, unrighteous. And, and we say on one side, great, I'm glad that evil's being punished, right? It needs to be. But the bad side is then we look in the mirror and say, I've engaged in it. I'm enslaved to it. So the sense is, you see, this is life at the bottom of the U, in the, in the, in the U-shaped story. The, the sense that you should have is this, that apart from, from God, I'm in such danger. As John put it, I am both hopeless and helpless. What's going to happen in this story? You already know. Verse 4. What have I called this? The turning point. Verses 4 through 9. Or life after Christ. A.D. Now, the version that I have and that's in your pews doesn't translate this as well as it might be translated. Uh, verse 4. Hade theos in, in Greek. But God... I don't know why they had to, but now it says we were in trouble. Okay, in this story, do you feel it? But God, two of the most powerful monosyllables in the history of creation. But God has engaged in in a global rescue initiative. What has he done? I I just jotted down three rescue actions. He has made dead people alive. But God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead. Verse 1, we were dead people. But in the rescue effort, we are ready to be made alive. How can you tell if you're alive? You start to be alive to spiritual and eternal stimulus, not just physical. What do you mean by that, preacher? That means it used to be when this... Bible, this God's Word was read, it was just a book. Maybe it has some good moral teaching. Then suddenly it, you hear more, you, you see more. It's God the Father speaking to you. When that begins to happen, you'll know you're beginning to become alive. Sometimes it'll even happen in a sermon. You've come and heard the preacher before, and it was a speech, sometimes okay, sometimes not so good. But then you come in. And instead of just hearing a speech, if that preacher is faithful to this word, you hear a message from God as if you're the only one in this place. Has it ever happened? Uh, Chapter 1, I pointed this out earlier. One of the surest ways to know that you're coming to life is that you used to only want to be with people like yourself or people who could advance you. But you find out that when you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you come alive and you begin to have a love for all God's people. If that's beginning to happen, you know you're alive. Because if that doesn't happen, you're going to hate heaven. You're just going to hate it in eternity with people you don't love. But that's one of the things God does with us. He gives us new eyes to see one another. And to see brothers and sisters. And we begin to love people we otherwise would never never love. Uh, he, He has made us alive. The second part of that rescue action of God is that He's taken enslaved people... Verse 2, who couldn't get out of this mess though we wanted to, and he's raised us up with Christ. Verse 6, he's taken us out of this mess and placed us in a place where we can begin to live differently. Now, this doesn't happen as fast as I want it to happen. Uh, It's a process. 
But I'll tell you, when you're made alive, when you're made alive, first of all, you start to have a longing to live differently. But then you begin to see what I call a new moral capability. Um, Those of us who've walked with the Lord a long time, don't you wish that that ability to live morally and right would happen much faster? Remember, it's a U-shaped plot, so it begins to happen. It begins to, it begins to happen. You begin, you, we begin, as Paul would say to Timothy, and, and, and 1 Timothy 4.13, we begin to make progress so that those who are alive, as you watch your pastor, if I'm truly alive, you should see me growing in my faith. You shouldn't expect absolute perfection yet, but I shouldn't be satisfied with imperfection either, nor should you, nor should I with you. We should see one another beginning to make progress because we have been raised with Christ. And then the third part of this rescue action is he's taken condemned people who are in trouble and he's seated us in victory. He's seated us with Christ so that we are no longer the objects of wrath because Jesus took the punishment that we deserved. This is what the book of Romans chapter 8, it talks all about it. Who now? The judge is God. So who now is going to be able to bring a charge against God's people? Because the very judge is the one who's rescued us. And our advocate is the one who died and defeated death by his resurrection, Jesus himself. So that now nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, we can only say, thank you, Lord. Well, we can stand and wonder why has he done it. And we'll never get a full answer to that. He's chosen to do it. But the Bible gives us a couple of phrases. Look again at verse 4. But God, because of his great love for us, but God who is rich in mercy, rescued us. I don't know if you understand that, but I just want you to bask in it. This morning as you come here, I tell you on the authority of this word that God, the Holy powerful maker of the universe loves you and is ready to rescue you and remake you and he's ready if you say but does he know how messed up my life is yes but he is rich in mercy great love rich mercy i was a philosophy major in college i had one professor it was a christian college it was wheaton college had one professor who different from the other ones never prayed before he gave us a test one day he, and they were hard tests. One day he passed out one of those tests. And we said, Dr. Hackett, why don't you pray? So he did. The prayer was like this. Dear Father, I pray that the scores that these students will achieve on this test will be an accurate reflection of the amount of study they put into this course. Amen. <laughs> we were shaking our heads. No, no, no. Don't pray for justice. Pray for mercy. We need mercy. We need mercy. And that's the same way when it comes to God. If it's justice, we're hopeless. I mean, it's not just talking about the Hitlers and the Stalins of this world. It's talking about people like the Apostle Paul himself who wanted to live a good life but didn't know God. If justice had come, he would have had no hope. But God, who is rich in mercy, why does God do it? He loves us and he's rich in mercy, so he's ready to show us grace. How does God do it? If you just want it now, how do you enter into this family and know this rescue? Uh, The time goes by way too quickly, but I'll walk through it with you. Verse 5. He made us alive with Christ. He raised us up. Verse 6. Do you see? 
with Christ. He seated us with Christ. Are you beginning to see a pattern here? <laughs> verse 7. He has shown us kindness in Christ Jesus. And in case we miss it, verse 10. We become His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. The bottom line in this rescue story is the person of Jesus Christ. And the ultimate question that faces all of us if we're going to really live is what do you do with Jesus? And what we are called upon to do is to place our faith. It's God's work, no boasting. For by grace, for by grace, not, not earned, by grace you have been rescued, you've been saved. Through faith. But in case you say, well, ha, huh, I believed and he didn't, so I'm pretty proud of myself. No, 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 no. And that not of yourselves. This is a gift of God. It is not of works in case anyone should boast. But it's God's work, but we must trust. You say, how does that fit together? His work, but I must trust. All I can tell you is if you begin boasting about what you've done, you've missed it. Faith is simply entrusting ourselves to him and finding out that he receives us. Giving our sins to him and finally takes it. Giving our lives to him and find that he remakes us. That is the turning point. What we do with Jesus. But the story isn't over at that point. And that brings us to verse 10. I call it the end of the story. Um, look, look at verse 10. We are God's workmanship. Did I put this up here? Um, workmanship. I think I have a slide for this because I want you to see it. The word for workmanship is poema. Does that sound like anything you, you know? Poema. Poem. Our English word for poem comes from this. And really, in, in Greek, it was, it was used for any work of art. We have a lot of artists and musicians who are here. Uh, what it says is that before the creation of, of the world, because here he says... God prepared in advance. And in chapter 1, remember, before the creation of the world, God says, I'm going to do a masterpiece. What is that masterpiece? Well, I'll tell you, God does a lot of great masterpieces. I love Southern California. I get out of, uh, go walking outside my door. I look out on those mountains that, that are part of our area. Isn't that a masterpiece? It's so, so beautiful. Uh, on my day off, sometimes I like to drive down to the ocean. You see the power and the majesty of the Pacific Ocean. It's a masterpiece. Our, our father made it. But he says, I have an ultimate masterpiece. I'm at work. Before the creation of the world, I had a plan that I was going to create a wonderful masterpiece. And what is that masterpiece? It is us. It is his family. You can see it on several levels. You can see it on the, the global family that this is an incredible masterpiece this family he's drawn together. We can see it in our, our, our own church here. You can see it on an individual level, too. Now, we will say sometimes, boy, I've seen th this Lake Avenue church family, and it doesn't seem like all that great a masterpiece. <laughs> I just want you to know he's not done with his work yet. He's not done with his work. Any, I'm not an artist, but any good artist knows that when you start with that canvas, you're not done with the thing. It, it, you're still going to keep working, right? And sometimes those who watch a painting I've seen Marion over here, one of our artists. You see, you, sometimes when somebody watches what you do, what on earth is she doing? Until you start seeing it come together. 
And, and we're, we're going to see that God has promised he's going to finish his work. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And if you come into the church and you say, well, I know he's not done with me. You have joined a family where he's not done. And I just want to tell you personally that that masterpiece is what God will do in your life. God will keep drawing you away from the things that ruin your life. He'll keep offering you hope until your life is conformed to the image of Christ. We are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus. Not, not to live in sins and transgressions, but to do good work. That, that's what he's created us in advance to do. And I'll tell you, the opportunity to be rescued and remade comes to all of us who are here. I, I simply need to ask you at the very end, are you alive to God? It comes through faith in Christ. When you read this word, do you hear your father's voice? When it goes forth, do you hear him speaking to you? When you look at Jesus, do you just see a moral teacher? Or do you see your Savior and your Lord? When you see God's people, do you see fellow recipients of the Spirit of God? When you see people in the world, potential members of the family, are you alive to these eternal, beautiful truths? You can be. I'll, I'll show you one other text where Paul revels in this. 2 Corinthians 5:17. If anyone... Don't you see? You can be in that, right? Isn't that anyone is anyone? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And when that happens, the old, the downside of the you, is gone. For the new has come. Being saved. It's a rescue effort by God. It's a beautiful thing. And God makes that rescue available to all in Christ. To his glory. Amen. May we pray for just a moment. I'm going to want to give us an opportunity to respond to the message today. On the worship folder, you will see there's a section where usually I've left room for notes. If I can find one. Ah, yes, thank you, Liz. I wanted John to tell his story, his living letter, because all of us who come into God's family have these stories of how God rescued us. And just to stimulate our thinking, though it happens differently with each one of us, I put a few questions here that for many of us through the coming weeks I want you to think and pray about. One of the things I want us all to do in our church family is to begin writing the story of how we came in. And I'd like us to collect them, send them in to us. You can mail them if you don't get on the computer. I had so many of you tell me, why do you keep telling us to do that? Well, mail it. Bring it in. But those of you who, who, who do have computers, you can send it to stories at lakeav.org. We want to collect those. It may take us a while. We have a lot of people. Uh, I think we're going to get inundated. But I want us to do that, to think again about what was life like before you came to Jesus. Do any of those descriptions, you know, dead, enslaved, do, do they ring true to you? Um, or if you've been in the church for so long, you can't quite remember, what would your life be like if you were not a follower of Jesus? Think about the first people who ever told you the good news. You might want to go and thank them. Uh, think about that time when you believed. Uh, where was it? How did you feel? And, and, and do you see any evidence of, of life? 
What changes are happening? And do you long to have happened because of Christ? Now today, as, as Dwayne and our team have come up to play, I want to give us another opportunity. I would like our pastors and some of our prayer counselors to come forward. For those of you who are not sure that you're alive to God, that you have trusted Christ, we're going to have some of our prayer counselors, our pastors to come right now to the, to the front. As the music is being played and sung, we'd like to have you come forward. And if some of you are going through some incredibly challenging times these days, would like to come forward to have a brother or sister to pray with you, you come as well. Whatever God may be saying to you, this invitation is for you. Come and make sure that you're in this beautiful, unexpected family of God.